Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, episode number 280 with Aaron Ahuvia. How are you, Aaron? Very good. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, likewise. Now, obviously, today's title, we're talking about love. Uh, and I think you probably get this a lot in your work, uh, but love scares the crap out of people, Aaron. Like, when you say we're talking about love, people clam up and things like that. But we are talking about consumer products, around brand, around items, around making people fall in love with what you're doing. So um, just so people know that today, I'm excited to talk about that. But before we dive into that, Aaron, what's the highlight that uh, you've had in the last seven days? The highlight in the past seven days, um, getting back on the mountain bike. I love mountain biking. And uh, I recently went for uh, sort of the mountain biking version of a marathon. It was 50 miles. And 50 miles on a single track on a mountain bike is a long way. It is. Uh, and it my is. legs kind of gave out. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, it, it was a while before I, I dared to get back on the thing, but I went back uh, a couple of days ago and had a great time. And that's the highlight of my week. Nice. And I, I, I love that. It's uh, there's no better form to get out in nature and enjoy it, particularly uh, on, on, on a mountain bike, because it is quite a uh, high exhilarating sport, isn't it? Oh, completely. And if you want to talk about getting out in nature, uh, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Every place, I really believe every place around the world has its own beautiful nature. And one of the things that's really just breathtaking about uh, this area of the United States is when you get into this season of the fall and all the leaves change colors and the forests just become this immense uh, sort of pastiche of color everywhere. Uh, so that was really a beautiful, uh, it gives you the exhilaration of the sport, but also you get this great natural aesthetic experience it's really wonderful it really uh opens up all your senses doesn't it when you not only you're getting the the exercising which you all the good endorphins and things like that but when you take the time to be present and look around at how beautiful nature is and i think that's the, the great thing about different seasons are you know like you get to experience so many different things like the colors of the leaves are falling the changing climate all these different things if you allow yourself to take those in yeah, and it's the best case for mindfulness. And Correct. I'll tell you, I I struggle with mindfulness a little bit. I, I am one of those meditator people. I try and work on it. It's I'm not a normally, I'm a little bit on the ADHD end of the spectrum, uh, which is probably not surprising to anyone who knows me or or my work. Uh, but I I you know I try and work on the focus a lot. And mountain biking is funny because. I'll be out there and I'll be having what is one of the best experiences a human being can have. Like it's so beautiful, it's so exciting. And I'll realize for the past 10 minutes, I've missed the whole thing because I've been having some stupid daydream about some incredibly boring thing. You know, like a committee meeting that I'm gonna have later in the day. I'm like, why the hell am I out here having what could be one of the greatest experiences of my life. And instead, my brain is thinking about a committee meeting, which is, you know, just going to be so, so terrible and drudgery, you know, all the drudgery. So it, it's a, it's an ongoing challenge. 
I think uh, I'm pretty similar as well, and hence why I call my uh, podcast Energetic Radio. I struggle to sit still, Aaron. And so, but in a way, what you're just saying there is a form of mindfulness is you're catching yourself, thinking about a committee meeting and bringing yourself back to the present. So that is a form of mindfulness in a way, I suppose. Oh, it totally is. And 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 I, I don't know nearly enough about uh, meditation to authoritatively teach it, but I sometimes teach it anyway uh, to, to friends. And I always tell them that the purpose isn't that you're going to keep your mind focused on whatever it is you're breathing or whatever it is you're thinking about for 20 minutes. The purpose is to catch your mind wandering away and bring it back. But yeah. that's the activity is catching it as it goes away, right? you know, because that's the inevitable activity. So I, I very much agree with that. And there's, uh, I think there's nearly uh, 200 different definitions of what mindfulness actually is. So like when you yeah. break it down like that, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. And I think that's one thing, and I, we're not going to talk about mindfulness today, but I do find that it's a really important topic, Aaron, because so many people say they're not good at it or they're bad at it. Do you know what I mean? We're very quick to, you know, talk negatively to ourselves about this, but essentially it's just catching ourselves when other things come through our mind and try and bring us back to the present. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, let's get into, obviously, Dr. Love, but I love how you've got in brackets, Dr. Brand Love. Now, do you do you get a lot of people when, obviously, you talk about the things you're doing and the psychology of love and things like that, that people straight away think, you know, the, the human connection side of things to each other? Yeah, I mean, it is, for good reasons, uh, when people hear love, they think about people loving other humans. Uh, that's how love evolved. We didn't evolve to love our cell phones. There weren't cell phones at the time love was evolving. Uh, love evolved in animals before there ever were people. It surprised me. One of the things that surprised me doing this research was how many animals have something that's very similar to human love. Now, if they're not a mammal, if they're, say, a bird, uh, people call this, biologists call it bonding. And it's got to be a little different from human love because their brain as a non-mammal is set up differently. And so the experience has to be different. But the behaviors are incredibly similar. You know, so when a male bird is wants to show his interest in a female bird, he will come in front of her, he'll strut, which is, you know, that expression. He'll do little dances. He'll bring her presents. He'll bring her food. He'll get so excited he can't sleep. He can't eat. He just focuses entirely on her. And it's, it's a very similar kind of thing that goes on. Um, so then later, as mammals evolved, uh, humans aren't the only mammals to have what I would consider love. So they've done research. Uh, there's a little animal, it's like a gerbil kind of animal, it's called a vole. And scientists like to work with voles for all kinds of reasons. And the voles, one species of voles, mates for life. And so it has this extremely strong emotional attachment to its partner. And if you take a vole and put it in a little fMRI mini brain scanning device to scan the, this mole's brain, and you show it its beloved partner, um, the pattern of activity in that mole's brain will be the same as the pattern acti of activity in a human brain 
if you show a person the person that they love. Well, so with the wolves, not only are they behaving like they love uh, their mate, but their brain is firing in the same way ours is. And to me, that certainly qualifies as love. I don't know what else you could expect. You know, nice. so love evolved in animals and in animals, there is a 100% correlation. A, absolutely, 100%. You very rarely find that between species of animals that have this love or bonding, as biologists would call it, uh, for either their children or their mate, or sometimes one or the other, or usually often both. And animal species, they only find that in animal species where the parents either provide resources and, and parent the, ch the children, or, or and the parents work together as a team to help the children. So if you think about a lot of animal species, that's not the case. Fish will lay eggs, the male will fertilize the eggs, they swim off, they're done. Uh, there's a certain appeal to that type of parenting. I've, I've felt it at times, but it's not the, the human way, right? We don't just swim off after that. We, we, some, we raise... some do, some do though. <laughs> As you're saying this, I'm like, well, like there's all different cases for different types of human behavior with what you're saying around animals. Because yes, the, the way we want to see it is obviously two parents loving their child and bring him up, but that's not always the case. There are some fish in the human race. You're, you're totally right. You called me on that one, and all I can say is you're right. And I here, so for this sort of comparative biology, I'm getting a little far from my expertise. I don't know about this for sure, but I kind of, I wonder if humans are more flexible than a lot of other species are. That I, I sort of have this intuition that in a lot of other species, you know, if the species mates for life, it mates for life. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But you don't have a situation where, the species mates for life, but this guy decides what the hell, no, I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes and I'm never coming back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very funny though, isn't it? And I, I love how we can learn so much from animals. I, I do a lot of work around play. So, you know, and if you just got to look at animals, the way they connect, the way they bond, it, it is all through play. And um, essentially that's how they, you know, form their relationships, form all their different structures in their life. They do it through play. And you've just got to watch dogs. That's how they connect. Um, but it's very similar. Like what you're saying about animals are still different and you can learn so much from them. But in a way, they mirror and mimic so much about us as human races, and particularly what you're saying around love. Well, there's, I, I have noticed over the course of my life a very consistent pattern, which is, as science progresses, one by one, everything that we thought separated humans from the animals turns out not to separate humans <laughs> from the animals. Like, so humans make tools, the animals don't do that. And then they discover all kinds of species of animals that make and use tools. And you know, again and again, this idea that we're somehow separate from the animals I, I come to think that at this point, the only thing that really separates humans from animals is that humans are not afraid of vacuum cleaners <laughs> the way most animals are. Other than that, I, I don't really see it there. I, I, we are animals. You know, there's a continuous, we're, we're different from other species, but there's other species, every species is different from other species. And we're just one more in that way. 
Um, and I don't consider that an insult. I just consider it a sort of our status. Yeah. That's I, I, it. I yeah. Well, I totally, I totally agree with you there, Aaron. I suppose that's where it comes into. So obviously animals love certain things, not just their own species or, you know, they're young and different things like that. So with humans, how do you, obviously loving a person or a human being is different to loving an item or some consumer product. Do you want to explain that and maybe how that comes about and the different biology or science behind that? Yeah. So that's actually nice because as I was explaining before, sort of love evolving for relationships that help your children survive. I mean, that's why your children survive. There's an evolutionary advantage, obviously, to that. And those traits get passed on. That has nothing to do with loving your car, loving your cell phone, loving your shoes, loving chocolate, or all this other stuff that many of us uh, love. The brain is really, really good at separating people from everything else in the universe, all the other objects, and thinking about people differently from the way it thinks about objects. So if you look at a tree and try and recognize what kind of tree it is, your brain will process that visual information about the tree in one part of the brain. If you look at a human being and try and remember that who that person is, your brain will process that in a physically different part of the brain than it would if you were trying to do the exact same task with a tree. So your brain is very good at this sort of separation thing. And it does that most of the time. And when it does that, love is reserved for people. Um, partly in many animals, it's just in the family. In humans, we're, one of the things that is quite different about us from most animal species is that we expand it. We love our friends. We love people who aren't genetically related to us. So we have a much broader group of people that we love. But it's all people. What is happening, and here's the magic trick behind this, whenever you genuinely love something, I mean, really deeply love something that is an object, it is because your brain is treating it like a person. Wow. Your brain is categorizing it in the wrong way and thinking of it as it's a person. And there's three reasons or situations in which this happens. What, and what are they? Because I'm find, I'm finding I, I I find this so interesting, and I can imagine there are so many people uh, listening to this, Aaron, thinking, the, "I want whatever I'm selling to be on that brain, the side of the brain that thinks it's their loved one, because then they're going to buy it. You're going to get them hooked. I'm guessing." Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the first, which is super interesting, but not all that common, is. What, we, what happens through anthropomorphism. So anthropomorphism means that something that isn't a person kind of looks like a person or sounds like a person or acts like a person. And your brain thinks, treats it like a person. Consciously, you know it's not a person, but in terms of these internal mechanisms of your brain, the way it thinks about things, it, it gets categorized and uses the, the thought processes that your brain normally reserves for people. And your brain does this pretty often. It doesn't take very much to get your brain to do this. So one example would be cars. The headlights, if you look at a car, the headlights kind of look like eyes. The grill kind of looks like, looks like a mouth. Yeah. 
And people will believe cars have a certain sort of personality based on the facial expression, the way that face is drawn with the headlight eyes and the grill, uh, and how that mimics a human face. And what if that was a person, what would their face be saying? And then what kind of personality would they have? So people attribute personality to car based on cars based on that. And car designers know that. And car designers actually call the front of the car the face of the car. And they're very conscious about creating faces. And usually there's two different approaches that they'll use. One, which is less common, is the cute, friendly face. And that sort of looks like they make the the headlights and the grill make it look like a baby uh, person or a baby animal face. And that's, you know, friendly and, 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 and cute. The other one, which is a little bit more common, is the angry, aggressive face. And you see this on a lot of sports cars. You see it on trucks. You see it on SUVs. Um, you see it on a lot of luxury cars. And you may wonder, why would anyone want a car that looks like it's angry and scowling? What would the appeal be? Turns out, when people study groups of humans relating to each other, they actually can measure this. The higher people are in social status, the more time they spend frowning and looking angry. Wow. You would think that's that, crazy. You would think that the people at the top would be happy all the yeah, time. You'd hope so. It, I can, yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm thinking that Aaron and I, my, my father, he does listen to this and he's got a couple of old cars and I don't really see the appeal in him. And I reckon he loves them more than he, he loves us kids. And I can see now he, he loves the face of him. He loves that anger about him. But I would have thought like, yes, that's appealing, but shouldn't people that are successful be happy? Like, isn't that the dream? It is. The, it, it's funny. But if yeah. you think about like just a bit, like a meeting with the boss meets with his, you know, her team of subordinates, uh, all of the subordinates are going to be there smiling because what the smile says, partly it says I'm happy, but it also has a separate message, which is I want to make you happy. I'm going to do what you want. That's why we say service with a smile. We, it's not because the customer really wants the waitress or waiter to be happy, but the smiling service worker sends a signal, I'm going to do what it takes to make you happy. I am a little bit subservient. Whereas the boss in the meeting is the one who passes judgment. The boss is the one who says, this is bad. This work isn't good enough. You have to work harder or whatever it is. And so they've got, the, they're more likely to have that sort of sterner, angry expression. So you give cars that angry expression. People see that. They think that's the high status boss car. Wow. I want to drive the car that's the boss of all the other cars. And so you get attracted to that. So one of them, one of the three is this kind of anthropomorphism. That said, people love all kinds of things that are not anthropomorphic in that way, that don't look like people or sound like people. Um, now we do, I mean, there are other examples, not just the car, like your cell phone, it talks to you. If, you. if it's an Apple phone, you've got Siri, who has this whole personality. 
And people do really connect with that. Uh, so many people tell their iPhone that they love it. Do that they? Apple had to make up <laughs> a whole bunch of little replies for Siri when people say that they love her. My favorite one is, uh, I bet you say that to all the Apple products. <laughs> yeah, so sorry to cut you off again. That, this is bizarre because... Um, there's a lot of studies out there that, you know, loneliness is at an all-time high and it's getting worse. Do you know what I mean? Like people are so socially disconnected, but they're saying things like this to their phone. Like it, it, this is this is crazy. Like is this a thing? Like what, who who are these people that like they're so attracted? Is, is that because, you know, social media apps are, are designed to suck people in and keep them on their phone? And it like is this why they're just so addicted to saying I love you and Suri coming back with a, a corny quote. Like, um, this is mind-blowing, seriously. Yeah, yeah, it, it is interesting. But I, I will also say, though, and this that's a nice segue into the second situation. So the first situation is your brain thinks this object looks or sounds like a person, and it's like you have this relationship. It's like a two-way, you and the phone are in this relationship just with each other, a little couple things. There's a researcher who uh, was a little bit ahead of me in terms of doing work a little earlier uh, than I was doing work named Russell Belk. And he has this wonderful quote. He says, when you talk to people about products or brands that are really important to them, not, not, the, not the can of tuna fish that you don't care about, but the things in your life that matter to you, the beginning of the conversation, it always sounds like it's a relationship between them and the product, that it's person thing. But when you push a little bit deeper, you always find out that it's person thing person. So it's me, my cell phone, but it doesn't end there. It's the people I text on my cell phone, the people I call the people I send emails with, all the communication that we do. So the cell phone becomes a way of connecting people together. So I call this a people connector. Very clever there, right? Yeah, correct. It is a people connector though, but this is, I'm finding it, I want to get back and, and I don't want to cut you off here, Aaron, but I find... It is a people connector, but it's making, it's causing so many more issues. I know this isn't what we're talking about, but because people are becoming so reliant upon this phone or this device, because it does connect people and it's a safe way. They're not vulnerable. They're not putting themselves out there. You know, you're doing it through a screen. It's actually going to cause, and it is causing after a global pandemic, so many more issues than what we're, you know, seeing that people think they're safe because they've got all these friends, but realistically they, they don't. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a big difference between a Facebook friend and an actual friend. 100%, those, yeah. Those are, not the, those are not the same things at all. One of the things that, I mean, there, there, there's huge pluses and minuses to, to this sort of communication technology like cell phones. Uh, I totally agree. There's, there's great things and there's terrible things about it. One of the things it does, people have a very genetically built in focus on hierarchy. 
Uh, we're very aware of status hierarchies. Uh, there's actually some research now that says there's almost there's a part of the brain and one of its tasks is constantly keeping track of status hierarchies between people. And they, they flip around. Uh, it's not like one person is always above another person. You know, say I'm a, I'm a professor, so, and I teach graduate students, and I also teach executives. So suppose we're in a classroom and I'm teaching an executive. When he's in that room, I'm higher in the hierarchy. But then suppose his business hires me as a consultant, and I go in as a consultant. Then when the two of us in the room, he's higher in the status hierarchy. So the, the hierarchies can flip around and your brain needs to keep track at, at any given point of you know who's up and who's down and what this hierarchy looks like. So that's that's pretty inherent. Um, I do think you can calm that down. I, I don't think you're ever gonna completely get rid of status and hierarchical that's, thinking. That's tiring, but, Aaron. Like that's that's tiring. Sorry to cut you off, but that surely that constant like battle of figuring out hierarchy is draining like and if people are so socially aware of that or not sort of confident in themselves that must just absolutely do their head in oh i yeah well part of it is you it's not that draining because you've got a part of your brain that's doing it on autopilot so you don't have to you don't have to think about it it's so important that your brain is sort of doing this however you can put it to the back burner and not everybody has the same level of focus mm. on hierarchy. Not every society has the same level of focus on hierarchy. So, you know, don't think of yourself as a bad person because you notice hierarchy. Everyone, you know, it's just, it is part of our brain and how we operate, but we can turn the volume down on that. And there's a lot of evidence that in terms of creating happy, healthy people with high levels of well-being you want to turn the volume down on that yeah even if you yeah. can't turn it down to zero but if you can make that something you don't think about as often it's not as present a part of your life you're doing yourself a world of good and one of the things that happens to get back to the phones if you look at something like um you know any one of these social media they've quantified popularity so it used to be that every, people still wanted to be popular, but you weren't always sure who was more popular than who. Now you can just look it up. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons that people care so much about money is that it's this quantifiable thing that you can use for status. Like you can see, like, am I making more this year than last year? Am I making more than the guy next door or my brother-in-law or whoever this happens to be? We've taken that rather unpleasant logic and we've extended it to our social life in another area. And now people compete on who has more likes and who has more views and who has more friends. And we want to be turning the volume down on that stuff. We don't want to be turning it up. Yeah. Well, you, essentially what you, everything you're just saying there is it really comes back to you as an individual, what really matters to you? And I suppose if you can shut down the noise on status, hierarchy, different things like that, it's like stress and anxiety, Aaron. It's never going to go, but if you can manage that, they are like, we, we need those emotions in our life. And I suppose if you are happy enough in what you're doing and you're content with you as a human being before, you know, human doing or human working or human owning, that's not what we're doing. And I suppose that's exactly what you're saying, that we will always have that in the back of our mind, but it's about finding ways to regulate that so it doesn't consume us. Now, there's two fundamental dimensions 
to our relationships with other people. One is status and the other is closeness. How close or intimate uh, or caring is the relationship? And they have a very different effect on happiness. So you don't need to have a huge number of close relationships, but you need to have some number that you feel that people care about you, you care about them, you're in, you're not lonely, you're embedded in a caring community uh, of people. And so closeness pays off. If people have say zero friends and shockingly a lot of people feel that they have zero close friends. If you take someone who has zero close friends and you they make some significantly close relationships and now they've got three close friends, their happiness will not only increase dramatically, but it will stay at the higher level indefinitely. It doesn't wear off. And that's so different from so many other things. If somebody gets a raise, um, their happiness goes up because they're excited about the raise, but it mostly wears off. It doesn't 100% wear off. They're actually a little bit happier going on, but it mostly wears off over time. Whereas the benefit of close relationships stays with you. It's one of the strongest determinants of happiness. And it has this fairly unique property. And I even think that I understand, I've got a theory, I don't have proof on this, but I, I, I sort of came up with a theory as to why I think this happens. And it goes back to evolution again. We have this experience, I've had this experience many times, and I bet the listeners have too, where you, you think you really want some material object or you want some raise and you think it's going to be great and you get it and it's not that great. You get the raise. It's, it's really exciting because it shows recognition that people think you're doing a good job, but you find that you just spend more money and then you're just as financially stressed. Somewhat bigger house and a little more stuff or whatever it is. Uh, they call this the hedonic treadmill. It's like you're on the treadmill. You keep going faster and faster. You don't get anywhere. I'll be happy uh, when, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. And again, it comes back, you're not present. That's what it comes back to. What we're talking about at the start, I feel, Aaron. Yeah. So we do that so regularly that if if I did that, I'll just talk about myself. If I did that once, I'd say, well, okay, I didn't know. If I did it three times, I'd say, well, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> if I do that a thousand times, the only reason I think I can do that a thousand times and not really learn, I mean, I learn, but in a way that learning in a way that really changes my behavior, that kind of learning, not so much. I think our brain evolved not to learn that lesson. I think that it's, it's set up to not learn that lesson. And the reason is that from an evolutionary point of view, having more resources, um, in this case, you know, if we were a herding society, having more cattle or sheep, right? Whatever it is, in our case, more money, it doesn't really hurt you. There's not a downside to it. So your genetic programming says, all right, you might as well get some more money, right? It's, you know, you might come in handy sometime, you know, why, why do that? 
satisfaction is an off switch. If you were really deeply satisfied, if you did buy that thing and it satisfied you for the rest of your life, you wouldn't buy any more. And, and <laughs> you know, evolutionary programming wants you to buy more. On the other hand, social relationships, friendships are different because they have what economists call a carrying cost. If you have a friendship, you have to put time and effort into maintaining that friendship or it goes away. It doesn't really last. And if you have a, a friendship, yeah, it's great. You can call on your friend to do you favors, but they can call on you to do them favors. So there's sort of a cost to that. And as a result, you don't want to keep adding more and more and more friendships. You want a nice, healthy amount, which is you know good amount. You feel good about it. You've got people out there who will come and help you when you need it, and you'll go and help them when they need it. But adding yet another and yet another and yet another isn't really going to benefit you. It's going to become a problem in a sense for you because you won't have that time and energy to really maintain the relationships in a healthy way. So your evolution developed the human brain to say, okay, if, if I've got five, 10 really close friends, I don't want to have 20 really close friends. Who can keep track of 20 really close friends? So I'm going to be satisfied and satisfaction will be that off switch. And it'll say, don't lose those friends, but you don't have to really go out of your way to make a whole bunch more friends either because you're good. And so we get the situation where those social relationships, you can be satisfied and they can keep paying off in happiness Whereas other kinds of issues like having more money just gets thrown in the bank account and your brain just tells you, yeah, go out and get me some more. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, that's, that's crazy. And I reckon it, your true wealth is the connections and friendships you have. And you only have to look at um, so many people in retirement homes and things like that, Aaron, that what really matters in life. And they say exactly that. It's not what you own, how much money you have, all these different things you know, that we need more and more and more of because it doesn't satisfy us what it really comes down to is who we got to share those things with and who's there when we need them. And essentially that is happiness, isn't it? It is. And it's love. So yeah. that brings us all the way back. Because Ooh, I like that. Great segue. <laughs> here's how it all ties back. It really does. <laughs> when pe people use the word love loosely all the time. So people will say, Oh, I love your hat. And they don't really love your hat. All they're saying is that's a very good hat. That's an excellent hat. So we use the word love loosely, metaphorically, just to mean excellent. One of the things that we can learn from that is that the things we love are, in our own view at least, excellent. That's part of the reason we love them. And when people do scientific studies, the part of the brain that evaluates and judges things tends to be really particularly active in when people love objects more than it is when they love people. So there is a sort of stronger evaluative part of it, but that's not all it means to love something. The, another very important part is that it should be deeply meaningful to you. You should feel like this really matters in some larger cosmic sense. And how does it happen that an object takes on this property of really mattering? It happens when it's a people connector when that object connects you to another person. So my wedding ring really matters to me. It's just a little piece of metal, but it matters because it connects me to my wife. And so my wedding ring has the emotional significance 
that it takes on because of that relationship. And very often, one of the ways I'll do this research is I'll just ask people, um, and I won't limit it to brands or, or products. I'll, I want to hear anything. I'll say, tell me anything that, that isn't a person that you love. And sometimes they'll mention brands or products. A lot of times they'll mention things they made themselves or nature or all kinds of other things that they might love. But over and over again, what it turns out is when they really love something, that their love for the object is reflection of their love for a person that it connects them to. Wow. So that when you're thinking about that, and it's just made me realize a lot of things that it's because somebody gave you something and it means something you treasure it. So a lot of a lot of probably items people are saying is when somebody passes away, they get this huge emotional attachment to, you know, it might be a blanket or it might be like a, a coat hanger. Or, I don't know. It could be anything, but because that person gave it to us no longer here, it means so much more to them, doesn't it? Oh, yes. I, because it it becomes all you have left, as yeah. people say, all you have left of that person. And when you ask people if your house was burning down and you only had time to grab a few things, what would you grab? Uh, now they all say, I you know my laptop and my cell phone. But in addition, <laughs> to that, in, in addition to that, it's these people connectors, these objects that carry memories of people. And I'm sure, I haven't seen this part in research, but it makes total sense to me that you would be most concerned if the person had passed away, because then you couldn't make another one. If the person's still alive, you know, maybe you could recreate something like that if you really needed to. But if the person's gone, when that object goes, there's nothing left. Yeah. Well, and like, like you're saying with our phones and computers and everything like that, Aaron, most things are stored up in the cloud. So realistically you can replace it. It doesn't matter. But if you've got a blanket or a pillow or a teddy from somebody that's not here anymore, I can mm -hmm. see why people like get really attached and really emotional about that item because they see that person who's no longer here through that one item. And that item will not mean anything of any value to anyone else, but it means the world to that person. Yeah. So the third thing, which is a nice segue here, because you were talking about like maybe you had this teddy bear or a blanket that reminded of a person of, of somebody else. The third situation is kind of like this people connector, but instead of the object connecting you to somebody else, the object reflects who you are. It's a part of your own sense of identity. I was looking on Reddit a while ago and there was this interesting stream of comments from people writing in, all of them having versions of the same story, which was one of their parents threw away their childhood blanket, teddy bear pillow, whatever that uh, attachment object was that they had as a little kid, threw it away and said, well, you're a grown up. You shouldn't care about this. Why do you still have this in your bedroom? But the reason that they had it in their bedroom was because it was a physical connection to their former self. And it gave them a kind of continuity through time. And it's because it was connected to who they were, when their parent threw it away, they felt like something had been amputated from them. And they wow. were very, very upset about losing that object, even if they were you know, older and adult now and, and didn't have the same need for it in the same way. 
Well, Aaron, if I've taken away one thing from today, I've learned a lot, but it's probably to be a little bit more empathetic to people's items and don't just assume because it's a stinking old bunny that looks like it's, you know, been through the ringer and the tip and like everything that it should be thrown out because it means something to them. And I think, again, that's what it really comes down to. We all value different things. We all need different things for happiness and love in our life. And we should never judge on that, should we? I was... I was such a horrible snob when I started this enterprise. I, you know, I'm a good sort of grew up in an academic family and was taught not to be a materialistic person and partly researched this out of interest in why some people become materialistic and what materialism is and had a very negative view. Now, there are a lot of problems with materialism. Um, uh, science really backs up, psychology really backs up that, that, that you can, materialists tend not to be happy, they tend to have psychological problems, I'm not going to advocate for materialism. But I will say that in this research, when I talk to people and interview them, it happened over and over again when it started that they would say, I love such and such, and I would think, oh, that's just... <laughs> immature or gauche or tacky or whatever how could you love that and then they would tell me the story of why they love that thing and by the end I would be like ready to cry in their living room I'd be like you go that's great <laughs> and what I learned was that once you actually understand where people are coming from uh, it's much more sympathetic there, there oh. there's always a backstory and once you learn that backstory I just felt bad for being judgmental. Now, I never would show my judgmentalness. As a researcher, you never can do that. But privately, internally, I would often think, like, that's not that's not a good thing. But I, I've really come around, and I feel that, you know, whatever people love, there's, there's a reason for it that means something to them. And I should just trust them that that's important. Well, and I think that's a, a beautiful, I think what you just mentioned there, is relatable to people in all different areas of life. We judge everything. We judge people, judge status. We judge everything about people without even knowing them. And we all do this. Um, I think, you know, if you can take one thing away from that is, you know, don't just judge, get to know somebody, get to know their story. Uh, because when you do that, you allow yourself to actually meet that person or meet those things about them or figure out why that sentimental bunny means so much to them instead of they're a grown adult. They don't need this. I, I love that. So, Aaron, I've loved the three different things and everything you've mentioned today. You've got all this in a book. Let's talk about your book. What is it? Where can we find it? So the book is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And it's just about that, right? It goes through a lot of research. Um, it is written to be fun and uh, it is not written to be a homework assignment. It's written to be pleasure. People tell me they enjoyed it. And it goes through this research for myself and other people. It really, one of the nicest things that I've ever heard, and when I read the, for example, the reviews on Amazon that people write in, is they'll write, you know, I got this book because I wanted to understand why my you know, husband loved those stupid things that he seems to love. <laughs> but what I came out of this though, with was a much better understanding of myself 
and a better understanding of love, just really understanding what love is and how it works and how it works in our life. And that's one of the great hopes for the book is that it can help people lead a little bit of a richer life. You're going to live a life surrounded by things. We're in a consumer society. They are everywhere. You're not getting away from them. To the extent that you can surround yourself with activities that you love doing and objects that mean something to you and that kindle a little you know, warmth in your heart when you see them, that's a nice thing. That's a better way to live. And I, I, I love the fact that the book seems to be able to help some people do that. Well, I know personally from everything you've mentioned today, Aaron, that I'm definitely more curious about you know, love and how it works and the different things that you've spoken about today. It's made me be more aware of different things in my life. And I'm sure listeners that go and grab this book. This is episode number 280. If you go to the show notes, I'll have links for Aaron's website, links for Aaron's book. Reach out to him and thank him for his time today because what he's done today is hopefully planted a few seeds in your thought process or different things about yourself. They made you feel a little bit uncomfortable about, you know, different things. If you're judgy or the things you value, or if you're always chasing things, or are you a little bit lonely? Are you, do you need to maybe invest more time in your friends or different things like that? Because deep down that is all love. And if you want to be happy, these are things that you can do. And I know they are in Aaron's book. So Aaron, firstly, I'll have all that in the show notes for everybody. So go and get that, but thanks so much for, you know, doing all this research because it's one of those things that um, I, I don't hear enough of and I've learned a lot today. So I'm really grateful for having you on the show and for you to share your passion and everything you're doing. And I just applaud you and hopefully you keep doing it because it is something we need and we need these constant reminders. And I know I need those and so do the listeners. So Aaron, thank you so much for everything today. It's been an absolute blast. Dale, thank you so much for having me as a guest. I really enjoyed the conversation.